Welcome to 7-Minute Torah, an exploration of the weekly Torah portion with me, Rabbi Micah Streifer. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to subscribe or comment or share it with a friend. Our guest today is Rabbi Michael Satz. We'll be talking about Bahar B'chukotai, which is the double portion that brings an end to Leviticus. And among other things, this parsha talks about the sabbatical year, that every seven years you're supposed to let the land lie fallow without planting or reaping anything. And by extension, there's something called the Jubilee year every 50 years. Not only does the land lie fallow, but all debts are forgiven, land is returned to its original owners. It's like a big do-over for the entire society. All right, we are recording. Welcome to the program. How's the weather down there in Jersey? Well, uh, today it is foggy and kind of rainy, but it's been spring the last few days. That's good. There's a lot of things I miss about Toronto, but I do not miss the winter. I really understand. Although they may not be as severe as they used to be, which we could get into today. So for our listeners, we're going to have the opportunity to get to know Rabbi Satz a little better after we talk about the Parsha. So stick around, we'll have some Q&A. But for now, I'll just say that you are the rabbi of Temple B'nai Or in Morristown, New Jersey. And we were rabbinical school classmates and colleagues in Toronto, and we'll have lots to talk about. So we're completing the book of Leviticus, and it ends on kind of a surprising note. While the rest of Leviticus was talking about sacrifice and priestly stuff, now we're talking about land rights, about the sabbatical year and the jubilee. So what do you think is going on here? Why is this here? Well, I see it as like the center, the centerpiece of the Torah. I mean, if you open the Torah, it's almost right in the middle. In Leviticus, you know, the words of God are kind of helping the Israelites dream of what their perfected society will be. And I see chapter 25, which talks about the sabbatical and the the jubilee and redistributing the land and setting slaves free. It's the the economic vision, the social vision, the ethical vision. And I think it all boils down to there's a verse that basically says God owns the land and you guys are just the tenants. And so it it also gives a vision of, of humility. Ultimately, we're not in control. I don't want to say it's against materialism. It's saying materialism has its place. You can acquire land, you can have your farm, you can, you should prosper. Mm-hmm. But then we need to reset that every once in a while so you know the proper order of how the world should be. So is this about the land? Is it about God's power? As you say, there's this message that it's not yours. Or is it about gratitude? Are we training ourselves? Yes. <laughs> I think all of the above. I think it's it's about, well, it goes back to creation. In six days, God created, and on the seventh day, God rested. Mm-hmm. So there is the value of work, but work is not the ultimate value. The rest is the perfection. And the rest in the seventh year and then in the 50th year is not having to have possessions or material things. It's only relying on the relationship with God, which that's what faith is. And of course, the language of sabbatical year comes from the word Shabbat. Right. right. So we practice that every week. And then presumably, nobody knows if it actually happened, but presumably our ancestors practice it then every seven years. So I guess every seven years, every seven days, every seven years, every seven sets of seven years, you're practicing giving up control. 
You're practicing not controlling the world around you, not planting, not reaping on Shabbat on a weekly basis, not building, not uh, controlling electricity. So you're kind of practicing letting the world be what it is and living in the world as it exists. Right. As it exists with a with a non-dominating relationship. Like, I don't know much about agriculture, but you have to dominate. You change the land. You order the land, but then on the seventh year, you stop in the, and you live in, in harmony with the land. I have this theory that this is somehow about the conflict between food production and the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, like Cain and Abel, that's about that, right? One's the, one's the shepherd, one's the farmer, right? The bad guy's the farmer. <laughs> Who are the big heroes? Abraham was the shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. King David was the shepherd, right? So like the shepherd is the one who uh, is not manipulating the land. It's just, uh, yeah, they're more of a hunter-gatherer. So it's more like, it's more like Abraham the wanderer and the wandering in the desert than being settled. Like every seven years, you have to become unsettled a bit. Right. Every seven years, you revert to what humans were before we tamed agriculture, before we sort of tamed the land. Yeah. We we revert to living in the land as God made it, or you might say as it exists in nature. And don't get me wrong, I'm not like all for paleo and things like that. You know, I'm sure hunter-gatherers had, had very hard lives too, just like ancient farmers. But it, but it goes back to about control, right? Who's mm-hmm. who's actually in control and recognizing that we as humans only have the illusion of control six days a week. And then on the seventh day, we realize we don't have control and, and you can still have a joyous existence. That's such a powerful idea that we have to give up control in order to live in harmony with the world. Yeah, in real relationships. So like on Shabbat, I mean, love is a huge part of Shabbat. There are Jews who read... You know, Shir Hashirim every every Friday night, the Song of Songs, Lachadodi is a love poem, and but and love and relationship is about giving up control too, right? Mm. You have to give up a bit of your ego to be in relationship with another. Yeah, it's true, and you have to have to enter into the relationship as a partner. So the sabbatical year then is us entering into relationship with the land as a partner rather than as a manager. Right, and and that ultimately leads to your relationship with God too. You know, the people in the land of Israel were, you know, they had to rely on the on rain. And it doesn't rain a lot in Israel. While in Egypt and in, in Babylonia, they relied on these great rivers and they had canals and all this stuff. They had enough water, mm-hmm. right? So the Israelites were always relying. That's why you see, especially like in Deuteronomy, about the way you act has to do with your relationship with God, has to do with how much food you have because of rain. It's all tied back to love, to giving up control and relying on relationship. And I'm assuming it was a scary prospect because people were often on the verge of starving because it's not, it was not easy to, to make it a go as a, as a farmer. And that's why it's built back into the chapter about giving up debts, about uh, freeing slaves, about all, all of these things, because everybody lives a precarious existence. You might now be someone who's accumulated a lot of land and is therefore very rich and comfortable, but you might not be if it doesn't rain this year, right? 
Right. And I don't know if we human, sorry, if we modern humans can fully appreciate the precariousness of, of pre-modern life. Noah Yuval right. Harari writes about this in yeah. Sapiens that or in one of his books, yeah. where he essentially says most humans in pre-modern times succumbed to famine and war and disease. And that even though there's plenty of those things in the world today, they yeah. just, it just doesn't even compare percentage wise to how people lived and how people died. Or at least us in the West, right? Right. So it's yes. so good. So let's let's talk about disease. I'm sorry, you're the host, but like let's let's Go talk, ahead about and talk about disease. Is this year are we gonna have a reset? Like, yeah, and I think that's what a lot of people are looking around thinking we need to reset our relationship with the planet. And and disease is certainly a part of that picture, but so is climate change, so are the yeah. oceans rising, so is agriculture. You were talking about Toronto winters. I'm pretty sure Toronto winters are not as severe as they used to be. In fact, everybody who grew up in Toronto tells me this is nothing compared to how it used to be. The world is changing around us and in part because we've been trying to exert control over the world in these really managerial ways. And even we very rich people in the West are coming to realize that a virus can kill you. So even a comfortable people see that life is precarious. Yeah. So at the end of the day, really, one maybe one of the messages here is you're not as in control as you think you are. And so that's why it, it comes back to me in some ways for to um, gratitude. And that gratitude practices actually help you to appreciate the this beautiful, precarious life that we are living. Yes. And having a vision of what what it could be in the future if every year was the Jubilee year. Right. So that's time. the social justice message in the end, yeah. that everybody is deserving of having enough to eat, not of being treated as a free person and as a person with dignity. Correct. Well, thanks for this discussion. I, we've covered <laughs> such topics as climate change, messianism, gratitude, and uh, disease. Global pandemic. <laughs> well, yeah, just you know, a few of the smaller things. Thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. My honor. Thanks again to my good friend, Rabbi Michael Satz, for joining us today. If you're interested in the rest of the conversation, please stick around after the credits. And as always, thanks for listening. and Have a great week. All right. So I have some questions for you now that are not Torah portion related. They're more about you and understanding you as a Jewish thinker and a Jewish thought leader. So, um, thought leader, yeah, <laughs> right. Right. someone who thinks about what other people think about heaven. <laughs> That's pretty much what Jews do. Yeah. So first of all, we'll start simple. What's your favorite thing about the work that you do about being congregational rabbi? Um, teaching. Um, I, I, I love, uh, I love to teach all ages, especially, I think, especially adults. I love to, um, my, uh, in my community now at B'nai Or, <clears throat> I teach a weekly Torah study. I try to teach one, uh, you know, I've been here for almost two years. I've tried each year to do more of an intense adult ed program that people sign up and have to, and, you know, and do all the sessions. So I've taught uh, a course at the Musar Institute, also a course, courses through Melton. Um, so, uh, teaching and then, you know, I see my role as preacher as really as a teacher and mm -hmm. I, I, that's, you know, something I work at and I, 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 that's what gives me life as a, as a rabbi. And are you finding there's a lot of appetite for Jewish learning for people looking to delve into Jewish text? Yes. I think, um, you know, I think I, I've heard this from a lot of rabbis right now that we're engaging more people through the pandemic online 
than before. And I think maybe, you know, partly because of convenience, because we're online, but partly people are searching for, for meaning. Yeah, and I agree. That's been my experience also. I think people are searching and it's right here available in your living room and people right. are just clamoring for the kinds of learning and the kinds of meaning making that, that I think that Judaism has always had to offer. Mm -hmm. So your rabbinate has been geographically diverse. You mentioned a couple of places. I know you, you served the West Coast and the East Coast, US and Canada. You and I were colleagues here in Toronto. What have you noticed about that? Is Jewish life different in California, New Jersey, or in Canada and the US? Yes and no. I'll, I'll start with Canada. In, in Canada, especially in Toronto where I was, it's, you know, in Toronto, there's still kind of ethnic neighborhoods, even for people who, you know, the immigrant experience is getting farther and farther away. So, you know, when I lived in the, in the center of Toronto, you know, eight out of 10 houses on my street had mezuzah on them. So that, that changes, it definitely changes the feeling. And, you know, in Canada, people say, and I think it's true that there's a lot more um, engagement with Israel and, and people go on more trips to Israel and, and therefore, and maybe have not fluency, but more familiarity with Hebrew. So that changes the feeling a lot. A lot more, a lot more people go to day school at my you know, large reform congregation that I worked at, uh, at Holy Blossom. Half of our kids, around half of our kids went to day school. So that, mm -hmm. that uh, changes the feeling of a community. Yeah, that's different from almost any American Jewish community. Yes, yeah. Um, in when I was in San Diego, is very different because San Diego is you know we had we were the oldest congregation in San Diego, so we had families that went way back in San Diego history. But most of our people aren't from San Diego, if you will, right? So that was a big experience for me. I grew up in St. Louis, the fourth generation St. Louisan, and you know all of my family was around, and and it was. Um, you know, uh, in San Diego is much more people who became involved in the synagogue, I found, were searching for Jewish family a, a lot of the time because their parents lived in Detroit or their parents lived in, you know, the older generations lived out east or wherever, Chicago or, uh, you know. And so, so in California, that, um, that really changed the feeling of the synagogue that the synagogue really it became even Judaism became even more synagogue centric there because we were helping people create uh, ties more create so than, family. Right. Yeah. I had a similar experience in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is also a, a, a transplant community largely. And so I grew up in New Orleans. And as you know, now I live in Toronto. In Charlotte, I found that most people who were members of my congregation were not from Charlotte, which meant, yeah. like you're saying, they really were looking for the synagogue to be a family. When I moved to Toronto, I discovered that all of a sudden people have multi-generational Friday night dinners with yeah. grandparents and great-grandparents and grandchildren. And so the synagogue serves different purposes. It serves yes. an equally important purpose, but it, it's not your family exactly in the same way. Although I have found in my small congregation, it is more of yeah. a family but i think people have their family nearby so the synagogue um it, it, they're looking to the synagogue for different things yeah and then here in in morristown new jersey morristown's that you know i've i've been learning so much more about how 
I mean, it's a very interesting place. It's it was it's actually it's like a small town, even though you know we're 30 miles from New York, but we're not really like a New York suburb, right? You know, we're everything's New York centric once you get in, in New Jersey or you know from New Jersey to Connecticut, everything's New York centric. Uh, but uh, but it's really a small town with its own identity. It's, it was a town that was pivotal in the Revolutionary War, and people are very proud of that. So some people here in Morristown or you know the towns around here have been here many generations, but some people you know kind of moved west as you know that as they moved away from New York or even Newark, right? You know, some a lot of Jewish families were from New York, Newark, two generations ago, um, but. Uh, where where we are is not, at, there's a lot of Jews around, but not as Jewish as you get closer to New York. So yeah. being like more of a kind of a small town, I found like the synagogue kind of fits in with kind of the uh, the religious life of the city, right? So being part of the, uh, the interfaith, the interfaith council is important, right? Being like our people, especially the ones who live in Morristown versus kind of the other towns around here, you know, there's like a, a green, there's, it's called the Morristown Green. There's like the, the center of the town, you know, a square and like being part of the life of, of this community is important to people. And like, um, and so I've been really trying to get the congregation and moving, moving them towards when we think about social justice, let's think about hyper-local. And we're doing community organizing here in, in Morristown, working with the local churches and, and nonprofits. And so we're talking about criminal justice reform, hyper-local. We're talking about uh, you know, mental health issues and, and housing issues here in, in our town. So it's like being in a place like this is, is it helps you think about these things much differently than being in you know, the huge mega city of, of Toronto. Right. Yeah, I can see that. I'm I'm chuckling a little bit to myself about Morristown as moving west, west of Newark, I guess. No, of course. I grew up in St. Louis, the gateway to the west, and I lived on the west coast, right? But like, right. I mean, west from New York. Yeah, I understood. Yeah. Um, okay, a couple of questions about you. Is there one Jewish ritual that you find particularly meaningful? It's kind of, uh, you know, I may blow reformed Jews' mind, but I, I uh, wrapping, wrapping the filling in the morning. Oh, really? How come? I think, you know, I, I, I try to have, it's hard, you know, it's, it's weird, but it's hard for rabbis to have a, a personal prayer life when, when they are, you know, the star of the show sometimes, right? When praying with the community. So I try to have a personal prayer life, uh, you know, personally. And, and wrapping to fill in for different I'll, I'm going to give a, a, a story, if you don't mind. So my my grandfather, who was who was Orthodox, my mom's dad, um, he was at my college graduation, and it, you know he knew I was going off to HEC um, shortly after that, and he said to me at like at the college graduation, he said, uh, um, he said, can a reform rabbi wrap to fill in? I'm like, yeah, a reformed rabbi can. He's like, okay, so I want you to take some of your graduation money that I'm giving you to buy a, a set of tefillin. And, and so I did. And I went about trying it out, you know, consistently. And it's something that I've stuck with. When he died, I now wrap his pair of tefillin that were his uncles before that. So they're, they're quite old. I've had them fixed up. 
And, um, and so one part is connecting me with, with my grandfather, but also connecting me with my, with, you know, historically what Jew, Jewish man, at least, I, you know, I, I recognize that, uh, but also it makes, you know, my prayer physical, hmm. that it's an embodied experience. And it's about relationship again. So uh, like we were talking about in the Torah portion, when when you put on, you know, there's traditional verses from the prophet Hosea about, about like tying yourself to God in this, you know, the verses are about a, like a marriage really. And so it's about making prayer about relationship too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, if you ask me next week, I may give a different reason why I like doing it or why why I do it or why I feel, you know, like, uh, you know, I feel that 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 I'm, I'm commanded to do it. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think we really are seeing reformed Jews embracing traditions. And, you know, as you point out, men and women these days yeah, yeah. can put on tefillin and, these are traditions that can belong to us as right. liberal Jews, just as much as they belong to uh, to his historical generations or to or to Orthodox Jews. Uh, what's your favorite holiday? Hmm. Whichever one I'm celebrating at the time. <laughs> I, I love I love Sukkot and Shavuot, so uh, um, I, I, it'll be a toss up. But I'll say uh, I'll, I'll start with Shavuot because we're almost there. Uh, you know, it goes back to studying and teaching. And so that's why, and, and I'll say like in Toronto, uh, you know, the community does Shavuot right in, in Toronto. And I used to teach at the JCC downtown every year. And it, and it's really, it was a beautiful community of learning. Um, and, but Sukkot, I, I love too. um, every year after, after Yom Kippur, um, now that my kids are getting older, they can actually help me. But like, you know, the kids would come outside and we would put up the sukkah and it would be, you know, a week of, I mean, now during the pandemic, we have dinner together all the time. But during Sukkot, it would, you know, in regular times, it would be a week of consciously having dinner together in a place, you know, outside. Um, and that's it, a, a practice of gratitude, as we were talking about before. I love it. It's such um, it's such incredible family time. I have this story, which I'll tell in full, you know, one of these days. But I just remember trying to put up my sukkah with the kids when they were little, and it took so much longer with the kids than it would have without the kids. And then realizing that after an hour and a half of putting up the sukkah, that I had just spent this incredible hour and a half of family time with my kids, trying to put up the sukkah. So it would have taken me twenty minutes without them, but instead, I got all this all this time with them. Yep. All right. One last question. What book do we all need to read? Wow. <laughs> I know I put you on the spot. <laughs> no, like, you know, that, it's so hard for me. I love giving book recommendations, but like this is too broad. Right? So um, let's see. I'm on a boober kick right now. And I think, you know, a very accessible boober book. His book is a collection called On Judaism. That We're talking is, about Martin Buber, the the, the German Jewish yeah, philosopher Martin Buber. Exactly, Martin Buber, the the German Jewish philosopher, German German Israeli Jewish philosopher. Let's say right, and so so this book on 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 Judaism uh, is a series of lectures that start you know over a span of many decades on on Jewish life, and it's his you know kind of idiosyncratic view of Judaism, but it's also you know. They are their lectures that are 
meant to they're not they're not purely academic lectures they they fill you with a, a sense of of pride but also a sense of you know really thinking about what could your jewish life be and you know my jewish life is very different than boober's he was you know wrapping to fill in would not be something that <laughs> that he would do he would think that's you know taking away from the message of judaism but like but uh it they're they're just very um a good insight into his thought about specific, you know, to his seeing from lectures to audiences of Jews of how to get them to think about Judaism in a different way. And of course, Buber believed that Judaism was all about relationships. Also, yes. I mean, he yeah, literally yeah, exactly. believed. And I, I, yeah, and that's that's why that's coming out in, in what I'm saying right now. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing how what we're reading affects the way we think and what we say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, also right now, I'm I'm reading this by Buber, King, uh, Kingship of God, which I've heard is, um, you know, like a very central piece to his thinking, but it's a much more dense kind of academic work. Mm-hmm. But his kind of philosophy comes out through the academics too. Right. Well, thanks for the recommendation. Rabbi Michael Satz, thanks for joining us today. It was a pleasure. It was, it's nice catching up with you. My honor. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 7-Minute Torah. If you enjoyed this program, please leave a review or a comment, and please pass it on to a friend. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week.